The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. How many of y'all heard a word from the book of Job? Huh? Not many of us. That brother right there. So pray for me, okay? Pray for me. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you and we love you because you have given us your word in order for us to have guidance so that we may be people of the word and people of God that will continue to glorify you through everything that we do. Help us in this season as we focus on fasting and praying. There is such sacrifice that comes with this. There are so many things that keep us busy and fight for our attention. But God, help us to focus on you and to be tuned into your word, your voice, and your call to our lives. Uh, Lord, allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. Our rock and our redeemer, all God's people said together. Amen. Amen. 1863, President Lincoln designated April 30th, the National Day of Humiliation, fasting and praying. Did you know that? 1863, did you know that, Daniel Warner, my historian? And what, here's what he said. Let me read this proclamation. He says, it is the duty of nations as well as of men who owe their dependence upon overruling upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance, say genuine repentance, will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by a history that those nations are only are blessed whose God is the Lord. The awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins. To the needful, end of our nation, our, our national reformation as a whole people intoxicated with unbro unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to God that made us. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has grown, but we have forgotten God. Genuine repentance and the forgetfulness of God in the midst of success, of wealth and power. One thing I want you to remember this morning is through repentance, we offer our hearts to God. We do. We offer our hearts to God. But here's the issue. When we talk about this matter of fasting and praying, it reminds us that our hearts are more susceptible to what we sing about, that we are prone to wonder, right? Away from God in moments of grief, in moments of sadness, in moments of spiritual warfare, confusion and controversy. We're inundated with this level of pleasure and self-sufficiency and self-aggrandizement that once we realize we find ourselves in those deep, dark places of depression, 
or overly anxious or drinking too much or falling into sexual immorality with pornography, engaging in premarital sex, overworking ourselves or giving ourselves to the lust of our hearts, whatever that may be. Instead of repenting, we self-medicate. Instead of repenting, we self-medicate. Why? Because we know that the burden of self-sufficiency is too much. The genuine repentance requires us to remind ourselves that we need to be dependent on the Lord and not dependent upon ourselves. We need to wake up every day knowing that we are dying to ourselves and that we have no good pleasure within us. See, living a life that does not daily repent means that, okay, I got it, all right. I'm going to be able to push through the day. I can take my pain meds. I can take my Xanax. I can do whatever I need to do. I can make sure that I, that I, I do my daily routine. And that's just going to be all right because I got it together. And I need to hold it together. And granted, I understand some of you guys come from broken homes and you have bad stories or you have situations that make, that make you feel as if I need to hold it together. Because if I don't, I, so baby is dependent on me. My mother is dependent on me. My family's dependent on me. But can I tell you something? You're not strong enough. You can't do it. And that the devastation and the destruction that you have experienced and seen in life, as we all have, is too overwhelming for humanity to think that they are the Messiah. There's only one that can redeem all things. There's only one that can restore all things. There's only one that can bring ultimate hope to absolutely everything. Children, I want you to hear that. I know mommy and daddy put food on the table. I understand that you think that daddy is a hero, son. I know that some of you children believe that your parents are the end-all, be-all. But can I tell you something? They're stewards of your life. Can I tell you something? I know that you may think that yourselves that you can't do of your own and that you can't think on your own. But your parent is there to guide you to the Lord. And parent, can I tell you something? That you don't have to have it together every time. You don't necessarily have to be the one that is going to make sure that everything is held together. You don't have to be the Messiah. Some of us got that complex. We're trying to save everybody around us, but yet we don't repent one bit. Thinking that we bring salvation. That can be the confusion. And so what's, what's the issue that we see in the book of Joel? The book of Joel, a prophet who we only know about his father. That's the only thing we know about Joel. The prophet is his father. But what we want to under, what we can put together is that Joel was taking from other writings. And as he was taking from other writings, that being the Old Testament, such as Exodus and other prophets, that he, you understood that he may not have addressed the direct sin, but you know that he was addressing what other prophets were addressing because what he did was he brought up references of the rebellion of the people of Israel. They rebelled against God. How did they rebel against God? It was one quote that I, that I understood a scholar to say it this way. He said, the exile was all its, in all its, with all its agony and dislocation did not permanently purge the people of their idolatrous inclinations. It didn't purge them 
of all of the things that they, that they begin to worship and that they were used to worshiping. It didn't purge them for them worshiping the moon. It didn't purge them for them worshiping their own selves or worshiping sex, sacrificing their children, killing their children and sacrificing them to other gods. It didn't purge them fully of that as they were in exile. But he says this, these inclinations, it is a potent reminder of the truth of the old hymn. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Through Joel, plague, Joel's plague and the thousands of catastrophes that followed it, God was prompt, has prompted his people of both covenants to return to him. To return to him. And see, here's the concern. That Job being deeply disturbed and fearful of the devastation from this plague of locusts, that you can see that it is connected to the corruption of the hearts of the people of God. The devastation that they seen was the devastation that was happening internally. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? The devastation and destruction that we see in our own society and communities, in our own lives, oftentimes is just as the, is, is the same devastation and destruction that's happening to us internally. This is why Joel calls the elders and the priests to lead the people in this prayer and repentance. And in this section, what we see is the act of repentance and, that, and the how and the why, which leads us to our points this morning, that repentance must lead to genuine change. Repentance must lead to genuine change. And we must repent corporately. That's point number two. We must repent corporately. Why? What is genuine repentance? What is genuine Repentance. It is being captivated by God's steadfast love, his holiness, his righteousness, all of his attributes. And being overcome by them in such a deep way that we return to God and we turn away from our sins. Have you ever seen a drug addict go through detox or, we, or, or go through uh, withdrawals? Have you, ever, have you ever witnessed them fighting internally? There's nothing, you, there's nothing you can do to fight the internal destruction and, and yearning that they have for the next either that fix or whatever it is that they're addicted to. Have you ever seen them and witnessed it? You, you, can, you can feel absolutely powerless to the fact that they have gone through a total detox, some of them, and the withdrawals are so strong when they're in settings or spaces, it causes them and their body to long for that very thing that was causing destruction and devastation to their lives. See, that's what I believe that the Christian does oftentimes when it comes to this aspect of rebellion and sin. That we long for the very things that cause so much destruction and devastation in our lives that what happens is we don't realize that we look just like the addict with withdrawals. We look like the individual that is in sweats, cold sweats, in 
fighting and tort in torture and in pain and in sorrow, just longing for that very thing. But it's supposed to be for us as Christians, Christ alone, right? But it's something else that we're yearning for. It is the fix that we're longing for. But didn't we go through that time of repentance? Didn't God regenerate our hearts? But yet we're wrestling with our lives to stay clean, to stay away from those things. And what happens is we fall in those things. And when we fall into those things, what do we do? We beat up on ourselves. See, here's what I want you to think about. When we think about repentance, we can't merely think about this as a daily exercise that's just optional, like going to the crock. I know some of y'all have already given up on your 2020 goals. It's okay. I give it up too. I'm waiting for the Lord to come back. But if sin is so ferocious, we must take repentance seriously. It cannot be a trivial gesture or just a vain act of religious continuance, but a carrying out of the full weight of our moral conviction, our moral conviction. So, yeah, when, 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 when I'm going to say it this way, I'm going to say it in multiple ways, okay? But when Shorty is pre pushing up on some of y'all single brothers, and then you saying to yourself, well, Lord, I'm not strong right now. Just forgive me for what I'm about to do. Sisters, when you are looking for that brother and yet you've lowered your standards for, 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 that, for, that, for that rascal. And you just say, Lord, you change him and I'm going to pray for him. Some of y'all understand what I'm saying. What happens is we don't feel the full weight of our moral conviction in that moment, yet we feel the full weight of what we want and desire, our pleasure, our sufficiency, what makes us feel good, what makes us feel all right. And I can tell you and promise you, you heard me say it before, but no man, no woman will make you feel like Jesus. He won't fulfill you. She won't fulfill you. Nobody will. No, nothing on this earth will do that. And so what do, we, what do we remind ourselves of? We remind ourselves that, yes, that turn from evil, we have to, be, we have to think about what it means to turn from that evil. This is what Joel is, is dealing with. I'm going to get to the, more of the context of what Joel is saying. But this devastation to this people of Israel, they are so scared in chapter 1 through chapter 3 that they are looking to the day as the day of the Lord as only judgment and that everything is about to be over. But can I tell you something? I think that we don't feel that level of urgency because there's not a locust coming through taking everything away from us. It's not, you see, you got to put it in the mind of like Hurricane, Hurricane Katrina. The effects of Hurricane Katrina caused how much money? $160 billion of damage and destruction. See, when you, when you realize that you have to leave your home and evacuate in an emergency and you have to go to someone else, somewhere else, and you are fearful because this, de this destruction of nature is coming toward you and wiping away absolutely everything, you feel what? Powerless. This is how the people of Israel felt. 
Their plants were eaten up. Their crop life they're eaten up. This affected their economic system. Everything was taken away from them. And so you can think about, yes, if I'm fleeing from Hurricane Katrina and I only work at McDonald's making $8.50 an hour, then all, and as I'm fleeing there and I'm going to Memphis and I'm going to Houston and I'm going to all of these different places, I'm, I don't have a mortgage. I don't have a savings. I don't have all of these things that, is, that, be, that I'll be able to live off of for the next several months. I may be leaning on the government to, to intervene but you, you see what I'm saying? You, you are, you've lost absolutely everything and you need somebody to intervene. I'm relating it to the fact that what they need right now is God. The hope of deliverance. And so you, you see what I'm saying? So when you go in your DMs and she's she sliding in your DMs or he's sliding in your DMs, right? I'm talking to some of my millennials, okay? Some more seasoned saints like, I don't know what DMs are, but he probably preaching to them. Yeah, pray for them right now. Pray for them. Pray for all of them, what I'm about to say. When they're going to your DMs and you sliding in and see you hiding all your stuff, whether you married. See, some of y'all just think, oh, he's talking to the single folks. I'm talking to the same. I'm talking to those that are married as well. He, sli- he or she sliding in your DMs and you entertain the whole conversation. Turn from evil. That's what the prophet of Joel is saying. When, you, when you're sitting there and you know that you have been sober for so long, but you're sitting and your buddies are saying, won't you just take one drink, turn from evil. When you are the one who is struggling with perfectionism or peer pressure, or you're struggling with control, or you are struggling with hatred, or you're struggling with greed, you're struggling from stealing from other people, you're struggling from thinking uh, 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 of your own self more than others, what I want to tell you is, won't you just turn from evil. And if you are sitting in this room and saying to yourself, well, I don't need to turn from any of those things, then you need to turn to the Lord because you haven't turned enough. And and what, what I believe that we ought to understand is that this weeping, this fasting, this mourning is due to the chaos, the destruction, and the devastation that the people see. How many of you have ever felt as if you were losing something and then you were watching it being lost? Somebody was taking taking something from you. Did you grieve it? Did you weep? Did you mourn? See, fasting helps us deal with this idea that we have to be able to train our bodies into submission so that we don't slip and fall thinking that self-control is only by self-will. It's a spiritual discipline. Paul says this, beat your body into submission daily because you can't trust it. Your body yearns for things the more. Remember that time when you were fasting and then somebody ate the cheeseburger right in front of you and you start having cold sweats, your mouth start watering and drooling. And they said, do you want something? And you say, yeah. And in the back of your mind, you're saying, I know I'm supposed to be fasting, but Lord, I'm feeling weak right now. And you don't want to start praying in front of that person because they're going to think you're crazy, right? And so you just take the bite out of the cheeseburger and the whole time you're having a conversation with God as to why you wanted to eat the cheeseburger in the middle of your fast. Some of y'all struggle like that before? Amen, somebody. But here it is. Midway through chewing the burger, you have to understand that this is the same thing. Midway through their destruction and judgment, God is saying you can still repent. 
What does that mean? Don't finish the burger. Throw it away. And know that you can still turn to the Lord in the mid, amid the fact that where you're trying to train your body to resist the very things that it thinks it needs more than God. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? And so this is where we understand and we learn that God's grace is sufficient in these times of weakness, in these times of suffering, in the moments where we are struggling, even through fasting, even through praying. What does it do? It helps us to reorient our minds and our hearts amid this, amid which we think God is going to judge us and say that he is a gracious God. He is a good God. He is a God that is one that will forgive our sins in our trespasses. He won't condemn us. He won't shame us. He won't guilt us. He will love us. And see, this is why our, our spiritual lives cannot be robotic. You see what I'm saying? When he says in verse 13, right now, you look at verse 12, it's like, even now, so even in the midst of now, declares the Lord, you can turn. So I want you to return with all of your heart Rend, tear your heart. I want you to do it through fasting, through weeping, through mourning. I don't want you to just tear your garments. Remember when Joel tore his garments? And what did he do? He shaved his head and he fell to the ground and he worshiped God. Did Joel do anything wrong? No, everything was taken to him, but he still grieved and repented amid the fact that he knew a holy and righteous God. It is a change of your attitude is what he is calling us to do. A change of your attitude, which is known in the Hebrew way of demonstrating a brokenheartedness, but, from, but is far more important than the garments. It is the heart. It's not just ripping your clothes. And so this gets to this lack of integrity and lack of sincerity. It is a ripping of the heart. Going right back to the illustration of you can see the ripping of an individual as they tremble and then they suffer through withdrawals. I think we do the same thing when we have to tear our hearts. When our hearts are torn, when leaving the very relationship that we don't want to relieve, leave. Our hearts are torn when we're sitting in community and congregations and we're going through situations and devastations. We've been through it as a church before, beloved. We've been through it in our own lives. But what it does is it changes our attitudes when we begin to do the inward work on our hearts. It's no longer... It's no longer about simply what the church going to do for me. It's no longer about Jesus being your personal homeboy or answering all of your prayers. See, if you come here thinking to yourselves that you are going to only consume and not offer, you miss it. Repentance is an offering of your heart to God. Remember, that's what I want you to hang your hat on. Repentance is just that, so it must be genuine. And this is what the psalmist says in 34, 18. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed spirit. How many of y'all know that through vulnerability and transparency, you feel as if you're distant and you're alone, that nobody can be close to you, and so you isolate yourself more. Everything that's going on in your mind and all of the things that you create in your mind, you create all of these barriers and blocks, and then you have a negative perspective either on the church or on community, that person that hurt you, 
the person that was the miscommunication between you. All of these things begin to draw a deep wedge and nothing comes to our mind saying that we have to block that wedge in order for us to return to God and make sure that we return to community and make sure that we repent daily because it's less about the individual and it's more about the change of my attitude. Psalmist in 51.17, David, he says, sacrifices of God are broken, a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. Downtown church, I don't want us to fall into pretension thinking to ourselves we cannot, that devastation is not knocking at our door. We have to be vigilant. We cannot hide behind the fact that whether we have a good budget or good growth strategies or we're culturally and socially aware as Christians, we cannot do this because moments of despair are always lurking because the devil is trying to deceive the church every time. And brothers and sisters, we cannot continue to walk through this door and not grieve the sickness and the pain and the sorrow and the ruins that we see around us. As we engage at work, as we engage with our children, as we engage in our communities, as we engage with the school system, as we engage with rampant poverty, as we engage with the incarceration rates, as we engage through gang activity, as we engage in everything that is trying to rip and tear apart our people. Downtown church, we have to repent and it has to be genuine and selfless. We have to repent daily. I think about the fact of not only in Katrina that they lose everything and that they had to evacuate. What came to my mind is if this is, I'm going to relate what is happening right now to Katrina. What the prophet is saying is God's going to restore everything. Look at what he says. Look at verse 14. Who knows whether he will not turn? I mean, look at 13b, sorry. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he what relents, he what relents, he what relents over disaster. Who knows, who knows whether he will not turn and relent. And what will he do? And leave a blessing behind him. A grain offering, the very thing that was consumed by the plague of the locusts, the grain offering or drink offering for the Lord, your God. God will replenish their land in order for them to worship him. That's what Paul, that's what Joel is saying. The prophet is saying that who knows that God will not replenish everything according to what? Exodus 34, 6. This is how you know that Joel read his Bible. Because he takes Exodus 34 and 6 and he says, it's according to his grace. The same grace that God, as Moses, was intervening and interceding on the behalf. He is the one that is so gracious not to wipe away a nation. He is the one that is so merciful not to destroy an entire people. He is the one that is so loving, so caring, and he is, he is faithful to his covenant that he will not destroy you. What does this say? He knows if he will redeem and restore the very thing that you lost. Who knows 
God knows. But what we know about him is that his character is good. And what we know about him is that he is one that will not turn, his word will not return void. You see, it's difficult for us to understand his grace and his mercy in a practical way. It's hard to comprehend it because so much of the time we're holding ourselves to unrealistic and harsh expectations. They're unhealthy. They are unhealthy on our mental capacity. They are unhealthy in the space and the relationships that we have with one another. We don't know how to experience his compassion. We don't know how to extend grace to ourselves, nor do we understand how to extend grace to one another. But here is what we must understand is that God does not delight in destruction and evil. He delights in redeeming and restoring and seeing that his people thrive and glorifying him in everything that they do. Let me go to number two, because I didn't realize how much time I was taking. And we got communion. Repenting corporately. Repenting corporately. So when you look at verse 14, you see that he's, Joel is saying, you don't know what God's going to do. And he, I have hope. And I've read the prophets. I've read the Bible. And I know he's going to restore everything. Now, when you look at 15, he says, I'm going to blow the trumpet. He blows the trumpet, getting the attention to everyone, calling them into worship and consecrating a fast all together. Some of y'all are thinking it's gathering a people. He doesn't just gather elders as if you're thinking about the session or the leaders of a church. He gathers the old people. He gathers the children. He gathers the nursing infants. He says, all of y'all come together and I want y'all in the same place. And see, here's the thing. Some of us may think to ourselves, oh, this is adult only. This is not for kids. He's saying this is for all of the children because they're the same way they're the same individuals experiencing destruction and devastation and they they can't hide themselves from it. I know everyone in our congregation is not experiencing it in terms of your children not eating but some of our kids are and we know in our communities they are. We know around the nation, around the world there is and when you see this level of destruction we need to make sure that we're laying hands on our nursing babies. We're laying hands on our five-year-olds, on our six-year-olds. We are actually laying hands on our 17-year-olds. We're calling our elderly people to grab hands and start praying with individuals. It may not look have looked like that, but in this solemn assembly, but I guarantee if we just hold hands together in times of destruction and devastation, that we will thrive as a church. It won't be because we have 15 more people joining the church. It won't be because we got a big donor coming into the church. It won't be because you're doing everything that you can. It'll be because we're drawing our attention to God and we're actually following him more than we're following our hearts. Return your heart to the Lord. Offer it to him in repentance. Do it corporately. Allow ourselves to do this in such a way that God, that God will be glorified. And we have to know, let me give us real practical ways to do this. We have to do it in community groups. We have to do this in community groups. The children just cannot be in another room all the time in, in another area while you, the adults are reading the Bible and praying. You need to gather your children, community group leaders and community group, put them in the middle of the circle and begin to pray for them. You need to gather other people, whether it's gender specific, Gather the women, put them in a circle and pray for them. Gather the men, put them in a circle and pray for them. You're asking why? Because we need to be strengthened in the way that we pray together. 
But we don't just pray, Lord, bless them. Lord, you know, make sure that we repent. God, forgive us for the ways that we've treated each other. Forgive us for the hate that's in my heart. Forgive me for talking down about my brother or sister. Forgive me, Lord, because I I didn't want to go to community group. I didn't want to be around these people. I'm an introvert, and I don't care about being around these folks. And so this is not something that I care about right now. So, you know, I'm going to just pray to you right now, Lord. So these are the things that we need to repent about. These are the things that we need to make sure that we're drawing in our house. And see, you may think to yourself, well, I don't have any children. That's why I'm asking you to do it this way. Because we are family. Am I making sense? 217, amen, amen, brother, amen. The, the 217, between the vestibule and the altar. I just want the vestibule, how many of y'all grew up in a church where it had a vestibule? <laughs> And you, and you and you're like, what is this vestibule, right? Well, the Bible describes it as um, a p- pretty much the front porch, right, to the, to the house of God. And when you enter it, there are there is where you offer prayers and you worship and you call on the name of the Lord. So technically, if you're in the vestibule at your church, you're walking in and you're immediately praying to the Lord. You're offering praise before you get to the sanctuary. You're in the vestibule. Let's just say that's the vestibule. Y'all should be out there not talking, but worshiping and praying to the Lord. Amen, somebody? But here's, on a serious note, that's why we wanted to start the prayer room in the computer room. Because we want to hear the prayers of the people of God before the worship starts. We don't want to start praying when Richard or myself or any other person gets up here and start praying. We want to, I want to relate this to how anybody been on a good vacation where you were so excited to go on a vacation, you didn't even get there, but you were so excited because somebody just gave you great expectations about being there. You, woo, I can't wait to get to Disney World. We going to Disney, we going to Disney. And the whole expectation is about where you going. I'm going to the beach. I'm going with my girls. You You know what I'm saying? Huh? All of this expectation and you're, you're excited about something that you're going to do, something that you can't wait to be at, something that you're excited about, something that you want. Woo, I get all of the things that you're thinking about doing. How often do we prepare ourselves to worship that way? I can't wait to get to the people of God. I can't wait to be in the house of the Lord. Does it have to be a situation to what you feel to be there? No. But should it be where you know that you need, that your spirit is yearning, the very thing that's causing you to be adverse to being to the pe- with the people of God should be the very thing that says, no, I need to grab my spirit, snatch it by its collar, and say, we're going to the house of the Lord. Why is that? It's because we cannot take for granted of what we experience on a day-to-day life, on a day-to-day situation where our hearts and our minds are being distracted and the things that are happening around us, they're not healthy when we're just reading the New York Times. We're just reading the Wall Street Journal. We're just looking at the impeachment trial. We're just waiting on the next election. We're all of these things that we're causing our hearts to be drawn into where we know our minds and our hearts need to be drawn into the Lord and we need to feast on him. That's our expectation. And so I want us to end this time because uh, uh, we should, in the right way, praying corporately. We've gathered together as a body and we should pray corporately as a body. 
And I wrote a prayer of confession for us that should pop up. And I want us to say this prayer of confession all together on my cue. And as we say this, I want us to say it as they used to say it in, in the church is with power and authority. And I want us to say it with a level of conviction, understanding that these are the words that we're saying together as a body. And my prayer, what I've prayed is unity. It's been a big thing is unity for us as downtown church. Um, the community group leaders know that because I sent a text message out to them a couple weeks ago, just praying all four weeks about certain things, and unity was one thing. So will y'all join me in this prayer together? Look at the screen, and we will pray on my cue. Mighty God. Say it. Just, just read it. Just read it. <laughs> Don't pile up. Love and compassion. Your love and love is not wavering and transcendent. Help us acknowledge it daily. hear the assurance of pardon that there is no condemnation none for those that are in Christ Jesus amen somebody let us prepare our hearts and our minds for the table as we know that the one who has given our life given his life for us has wiped away all guilt and we too repent together knowing that he is our God and our Lord let us pray together father we thank you so much for your word we thank you for your church we thank you for your people we ask that you govern our hearts so that in moments when we're prone to wonder and we feel it, we actually feel it, that we don't leave you, Lord. We don't leave our community. We don't leave the people that, that we love. We don't leave the God that we love. But, Lord, you draw us in in a strong and significant way. And the table is a picture of that. Help us feast together. Help us long to eat together. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people say together.